2 Kings chapter 12, and uh, it's a well-known principle that what a person believes determines how a person behaves. And a person can tell you they believe in Jesus, they can tell you they're sold out for God, but uh, if their behavior does not match the words, then their belief is a lie. Eve believed the devil's lie that she wouldn't die, so she ate this fruit and she would die. With eyes wide open, Adam would imitate his wife. And we understand that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. First Timothy 2.14 tells us this. Second Kings 12 is where we'll be starting off this morning. But when we believe the truth, God works for us. But when we believe a lie, the devil works against us. When our Lord was tempted by Satan, he countered Satan's lie with the truth, and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, there in the wilderness temptation, uh, shortly after his baptism, he would, write, he would say to Satan many times over, it is written, or thus saith the Lord, it is written. He would give you the words of God to combat the lies of the devil. And the three kings presented in chapters 12 and 13 Uh, They present three different kinds of faith, none of which the child of God ever ought to exhibit. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 12, and uh, let's read the first three verses here. We're going to look at uh, uh, verses 1 through 21, Lord willing, this morning, uh, all of chapter 12, time pending. But in the verse 1 of chapter 12 of 2 Kings, in the seventh year of Jehu. Uh, Jehu, Jehoash, began to reign. And forty years reigned he in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. And Jehoash said to the priest, All the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone, that passeth the account the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Let the priest take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. But it was so that in the three and twentieth year of King Jehoash, the priest had not repaired the breaches of the house. And King Jehoash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests, and said to them, Why repair ye not the breaches of the house? Now therefore receive no more money of your acquaintance. But deliver it for the breaches of the house. Now, I went a little further where we're at here. But uh, in his parable of the sword, Jesus explained that from a spiritual standpoint, a viewpoint, there are different kinds of heart. And they respond to the seed of God in different ways. Let's look at Matthew 13, uh, verses 1 through 9. And uh, Joash, if you remember, he was the one that Athaliah had been killed, uh, and he assumes the reign. Uh, seven years old. So in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to kind of look at different types of heart which will receive the word of God. And uh, God is so faithful, uh, and, and God sows the seed. But not every heart is fallow ground. Not every heart is ready uh, to receive God's word. Many times over, there are hard hearts, uh, there are embittered hearts, there are worldly hearts. There are all sorts of these four kinds of heart. And so in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat. 
And the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. So we have some here in the stony places. There's no depth to them. You have the other side that falls on the wayside where the fowls come. There's no root even into it. And uh, some are scorched and withered away. And then we find, verse 7, And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some in hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's look at verse 18. Hear ye the, therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received, uh, which received seed by the wayside. So Jesus is telling us you have the wayside, you have a heart that really is wicked and has no desire for the things of God. Uh, verse 19, <clears throat> when anyone heareth the word of the, oh, excuse me, verse 20, but he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. So the word of God is exciting, it's new, it's curious, and so there's some excitement to it. Yet he hath, verse 21, had no root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. This is many a, Christ, many a, a, a professing believer. I wouldn't say they're necessarily a believer because there's no root. But this is a person who gets excited about the things of God. Uh, maybe they make a public profession of faith, but they're not saved. Uh, and this is an individual here that uh, uh, tribulation, oh, I tried that whole God thing, it just doesn't work. You know, and sometimes people say, well, these people lost their salvation. No, they were never saved in the first place. You can't lose what you didn't gain to get in the first place. So an individual here ariseth because of the word. Oh, that whole God thing, I'm a, you know, I, I've tried it, the Bible doesn't work, the Bible's too hard, so, you know, God doesn't help me. I prayed to him and he just doesn't answer me. Well, this is someone who's a professor, uh, but they're not a possessor. As it says, he has no root. Verse 22, he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and becometh unfruitful. Again, here's an individual, received the seed, maybe has some root, but worldliness, hobbies, materialism, covetousness come in. And this person is rendered useless because of a heart that is not fully set on the word of God. Verse 23, but he that receives seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some in hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The fact is, the Bible tells us, the only one of these four was someone who takes the word, receives a word, applies the word, and brings forth. You know, when the hard-hearted hear the word, the seed can't get in, so Satan snatches it. A shallow-hearted people receive the word, but provide no room for it to take root, because their life is so filled up with everything else. And the church might be good for a little bit, but after a while, it's no more. A plant can't grow and bear fruit if there is no roots, and those with crowded hearts receive the seed, but the, the roots, the shoots, are smothered by the weeds that should have been pulled up. An individual who's honest, repentant, 
and understands the word of God and lets it penetrate their heart. They don't have all the answers. They come to the word of God. They find it in the word of God and they apply the word of God. They embrace it. They live it. And as we come here, King Joash is a man with such a shallow faith. Remember, it was, he was only seven years old when he ascends to the throne. Jehoiada, the priest, was the one, high priest Jehoiada was his tutor and mentor. And so he began to learn some things in, in the ways of God because of King Jehoiada, or uh, priest Jehoiada, excuse me, the high priest. And he was a willing student and, and he did what God wanted him to do as Jehoiada would lead him and guide him. And when the king was ready for marriage, King Jehoiada, or the priest Jehoiada would pick out his two wives Remember this, that David had Solomon got into trouble because of their many wives, and so the high priest limited Joash to just two wives, and it's still one too many. But it was important that he rebuild the family of David, because if you remember, Jehu, Jehoram, the Arabs, some of the Arab invaders, and Queen Athaliah, they, they killed all the seed royal. So the very thing of the Messianic lineage and the Davidic covenant is on the brink of being broken. Now we know it won't because it's God's covenant and God's promises and God's promises are not broken as long as they're conditioned on him. And so the thing is, the, king, the only thing Joash and Jehoiada didn't do is they didn't remove the high places in Judah. They didn't, receive, they didn't remove these local shrines where the people would worship, and so there's still a place for pagan worship. Now, they've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. Now, the people were supposed to go to the temple to worship God. And during Athaliah's reign, the people neglected the temple. And Jehoiada and King Joash would lead the people, as we saw here, uh, into this idea... In verse 5, and let them repair the breaches of the house wheresoever any breach shall be found. He says, listen, the temple's in bad shape. What they didn't know here is Jehoiada didn't realize that Joash was a follower of Jehoiada, but his faith was not settled in Jehovah. It was settled in Jehoiada. And it might be like a child who's faith only is so deep as their parents and when out from underneath of that their faith shows or lack thereof joash was a good follower but he was not a good leader when jehoiada dies joash went his own way and he disobeyed the lord the power behind the the kingdom of jehoah of uh, jehu Excuse me, Joash, apologize. <laughs> in verse 2, and Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. That's a sad testimony. Because it ought to be that I'm going to do right even when those who are not doing right are around me. Or, or, or when those who are leading me are not leading me anymore, I'm still going to do right. Jehoash had such a shallow faith. Verses 4 through 16. Let's read verse 9, because we left off there. 
Verse 8, excuse me. And the priest consented to remo- receive no more money of the people, neither to repair the breaches of the house. But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priest that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And it was so. When they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up, and they put up in bags and told the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money, being told, into the hands of them that did the work that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they laid it out to carpenters and builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord, and to masons and hewers of stone, and to buy timber and a huge stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. And for all that was laid out for the house to repair it, how be it? There was not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold, vessels of silver, the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and repaired therewith the house of the Lord. You know, as a king matured in age and experience, and, and you think about this, I, I like what Wearsby said. He says it's a normal thing for young people to want the freedom to be themselves, make their own decision, and the desire must have been intensified in Joash's life because of the authority he possessed. He's following Jehoiada for a while. He's young. Remember, he's seven years old when he ascends to the throne. So he follows Jehoiada, but then there comes a point in time, he's like, I'm the king, I don't need to listen to the high priest. And so he asserts his kingship. Uh, Jehoiada is now running things, you know, and Joash could say with King David, and I am I this day weak, though anointed king, and these men the sons of Zerariah. Be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. You know, and Joash is saying, I'm the king. I'm the king. You're the high priest. I'll do what I want to do. It's easy to mentor a young kid. But when loosening and lengthening the restraining cords has the child planted their faith. Maybe it was just a generational problem there. It wasn't. It was a heart problem. And so the king decides it's time to be set free. He chose the repairing of the temple as his focal point for freedom. I'm going to get that temple repaired. And that's a good thing. And maybe Jehoiada and Jehoash, they had discussed the repairing of the temple. And it's an important thing. Maybe old age was a factor. And at first, you know, in verse uh, 4, Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone, the pass of the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh to any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Let the priests take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breach of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. And so there's a concern. You know, there's a money that comes in from the census and the other things that are coming in, this money that's coming into the temple. And, and the priests are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> if this money's coming in and we're not paid, how are we supposed to survive? And, and the whole high priest, he was like, hey, you know, they just kind of let the, the temple go and they just did their worship as they did worship and the house wasn't repaired. Because maybe these priests depend upon this income for their own personal income to meet their own needs. And so as far as the consensus was concerned, the priests and Levites may have hesitated. The high, here, these people are hesitating to push the temple forward, to make it a place of great prominence and of appreciation to the Lord. 
When Jehoash is 30 years old, having waited 23 years, the king decided to act on his own. He rebukes these priests for not doing their job. Remember, Jehoiada is the high priest. He also told the high priest, I will direct this program. The priest could keep the money that was rightfully theirs, but the, we're going to take a free will offering and we're going to get this place fixed up. And the priests would have rejoiced because now their income is not, you know, it's not on the chopping block. You know, sometimes you think about that, things can be diverted from what they're intended and there's problems. So Jehoiada prepares the large offering box, places it by the temple, and as we read, You know, in verse 7, the king is like, why are we not fixing God's house? And so they bore a hole in verse 9 in the chest, in the, hole, in the lid of a chest, and people begin to bring free will offerings. And guess what? The money comes in. It works. The temple guards keep their eyes on this chest. They keep their eyes on the money, on, on, on making sure that no one's taking from what is belonging to fix God's house. This temple's now under royal supervision. They also understand the project's under Jehoiada. You know, Jehoiada, people have a security that Jehoiada is overseeing this, you know, and helping Jehoash as they work together. As Jehoiada drills a hole, bores a hole, as it said. And so the people have security. And they knew every gift they brought and placed in the box would go directly to the building project, not be diverted. Now, Jehoash didn't ignore the priesthood in this. He made sure that they were paid. And the distributing of the money was, you know, handled jointly by the representatives of the king. So the king and the high priest, they're working together. They're fixing God's house. What happened here is there's a transparency. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As we find the apostle Paul making, you know, in regards to uh, how this is being conducted. There's a, a transparency in the fixing of God's house. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 8, 16. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. So he's saying Titus has the endorsement, there's a, a, a verse 20, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. So there's, a, there's an honesty of how this is being orchestrated. Verse 21, providing for things honest, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great, uh, the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of you, they are the messengers of the churches in the glory of Christ. 
So they're taking this, as they take the funds, they, they take Titus. There's, it's all above board. There's an honesty in how this is transpiring. They're honest and faithful. And uh, what's going on here in the temple is there, there's an honesty as this is going forth. Now, the one thing that we find as we read in here is they didn't, verse 13, there was not made the bowls of silver, the snuffers, the basins, and all of the instruments that were instrumental in the orchestration or the, uh, the playing out of worship to God and the sacrifices and so forth. So they didn't do this. Now, remember, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Athaliah would take the dedicated things of the Lord, the house of the Lord, and she would dedicate them to Baal. So she took all of these snuffers and bowls and basins and spoons and and these sorts of things that were in the temple and gave them to idolatrous worship. 2 Chronicles 24, 14, And when they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, whereof were made vessels for the house lord, even vessels to minister, and to offer with all and spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. And so Jehoash, man, this guy seems like he's on it. He's wanting his freedom. He's progressing forward. He's moving the, the house of God. He's getting it fixed up. You know, the, the house has been in disrepair for a while. You know, the high priest is focused there on raising Jehoash. So I think there's a lot of things that have, that have gone forth. And, you know, God doesn't live in church buildings. However, it doesn't mean it's wrong to dedicate a structure, a building, to God's service and God's glory. And we find this, you know, in John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so it's the congregation of believers. And should there ever come a time of persecution in this church where we can't meet here for our own personal safety, we'll meet somewhere else. Because church is the meeting of people. It is not some online thing. The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Uh, Acts chapter 7, if you want to look with me here. So it's, it's not, you know, it, it, this is a place that we've consecrated for the worship of God, uh, that we have given to the service of God. And as we think on these very truths here, you know, just uh, being honest, you know, this is God's house. Because it's been dedicated to him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my, man, uh, my hand made all these things? And, uh, you know, so he's asking this thing. So, again, is this... Now, if, if for some reason something happened to this building and it was no longer able to be used and we met somewhere else. Okay, that's where our church is meeting. And that's where we worship the Lord and come before to give him the honor and the glory that he's due. You know, many times the early churches didn't have buildings to to meet in. It wasn't really until around the 4th century that the law would permit these believers to construct buildings to meet in of their own accord. Some people would say buildings are a waste of time. A waste of God's money. The problem is, G. Campbell Morgan clarifies this issue with this warning. He says, whereas the house of God today is no longer material but spiritual, 
The material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the church of God in any place, in any locality, is careless about the material place of assembly, the place of its worship and its work, it is a sign and evidence that its life is at a low, a low ebb. little illustration, uh, Wearsby says, I recall preaching one Sunday evening to a congregation that met in a church building that was, such, that was in such disrepair that it couldn't help but embarrass the members and the visitors they brought. It was doubtful any of the members lived in houses in that condition. I asked one of the church leaders why they didn't fix things up, and he replied somewhat sarcastically, oh, most of our budget has to go to foreign missions. And you know what the missionaries do with the money we send them? They fix their buildings, he said. It wasn't a matter of either home or foreign, but of balance. There was a lack of balance. The light that shines farthest will shine brightest at home, and, and, and that ought to be something. And we as a church are continuing to try to improve this building, and, and I'm so thankful for it. Uh, God doesn't build things on the mission field and neglect them at home. We ought to uh, take care of them here and in moving forward. Now, something happens in, in our passage of Scripture in 2 Kings. So the temple's moving forward, the things are being built, and uh, verse 14, let's read on here. We're going to read through verse 18. But they that gave to the workmen repaired there with the house of the Lord. Moreover, they reckoned not with the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be bestowed on workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The trespass money and sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord, it was the priests. Then Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it, and Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah his father, kings of Judah, had dedicated his own hallowed things and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent it to Hazel, king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. Unbelievable. Now, Jehoiada died at the age of 130. He was a man much beloved. Second Chronicles 24, 15 and 16 tells us this about Jehoiada. But the apostasy that comes with Jehoash after Jehoiada's death was not the priest's issue. It was a, an issue of the heart of Jehoash. There's no fault on Jehoiada because he led Jehoash to love God. He's the one that appointed Jehoash to the throne and anointed him when, when the wicked Queen Athaliah was on the throne. Jehoash's actions is a willful rebellion against God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do when I don't have the authority on me. I mean, think about this. Jehoiada and his wife were the ones that saved Jehoash. High priest taught him the truth of God's word. I mean, he, he reared him and schooled him in the things of God. But somehow that knowledge of God and the education and the commandments of God and all the faith towards God was only shallow tradition. And he gives what belongs to God to a pagan king. It is not, isn't simply enough to know God's truth. We must obey it from the heart. Truth in the mind can lead to obedience but truth in the heart and obedience from the heart will produce godly character. And the fact is, he had truth 
in his mind. It never traveled the 16 inches or 18 inches, or whatever they say it is, uh, to the heart. It was merely an academic knowledge of what was appropriate. And because Jehoash had a, uh, a respect for Jehoiada, he followed. Until duty and discipline become delight, we are only reluctant servants who obey God because we have to. Jehoiada was just a religious prop. You remove the prop, and everything falls. I like Wearsby, he says something. He said, during more than 50 years of ministry, I've occasionally witnessed the Joash tragedy. A godly wife dies, and the widower soon drops out of church and starts to live a worldly life. Sons or daughters go off to college and gradually leave the faith because their father or mother aren't there to counsel and warn them. I've known some high-profile Christian leaders who used their children in their ministries, but when the children were on their own, they turned their backs on their parents and the Lord. He goes on to say, a good beginning is no guarantee of a good ending. King Josiah had every encouragement to become a godly king, but he didn't take advantage of his opportunities to take God's truth into his heart. When the Lord sent prophets to warn him, he refused to listen. He even plotted with his leaders to have Zechariah. So here is King Jehoash turning his back. And we're going to read here... <clears throat> of the sufferings of Joash. What's going to happen here is Jehoash is going to turn his back on the very child of the priest Jehoiada because he doesn't like what he's saying. And you know what? Someone might be telling you truth of God's word and you don't like it, you don't like them. Because they're giving you truth and you don't want to listen to it because of a hard heart, a ground that is, you know, hardened. And in verse 19, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and made a conspiracy and slew Joash in the house of Milo, which goeth down to Silah. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabab, the son of Shomer, his servants smote him, and he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. Let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 24, uh, verses 23 through 27, giving a little bit more information here on what happens after Jehoiada dies, uh, after, and, and some of the things that he tried to do. But he tries to murder Zechariah, the son of the priest. So of the very man that helped him throughout his reign, as long as he lived, he took the son and tried to slay him, stone him to death. Jehoash is a man that I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to listen to God's word. In 2 Chronicles 24, 23, it came to pass at the end of the year that the hosts of Syria came up against him, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people, and sent all the spoil of them into the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men. The Lord delivered a very great host in their hand, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash. When they were departed from him, for they left him in great diseases, his own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest. He slays, it says, for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada. Jehoash has no affinity. He has no, you know, there's, there's no attachment. He's gone. That's great. I'm king. I'm going to move forward. 
They buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchres of the king. And these are they that conspired against him, Zabad the son of Shimeath, and Ammonitus, and Jehozabad the son of Shimrith, a Moabitus. Now concerning his sons and the greatness of the burdens laid upon him in the repairing of the house of God, behold, they are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. So <laughs> it's Joash, Jehoash, if you want to call him, Jehoash, or uh, Joash is later on called here in 2 Kings. His heart, the power gets to him. The money gets to him. And he turns from faith in God to politics. The politics to destroy the very children of the man that helped him. And there's a lot of problem here. And they're suffering. I mean, they conspire against him. You know, God would bring prophets to warn Joash, but he wouldn't listen. He brought Judah's longtime enemy, Syria, against him. And he you know, was severely wounded in battle. He didn't recover. Two of his officials would murder him because he had ordered the death of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. These two assassins are sons of non-Jewish descent. One son of Moab and the other from Ammon. He would be buried in Jerusalem, but not in the sepulcher of the kings where Jehoiada the priest was buried. Jehoash had a wonderful beginning. He continued the, the David's line, the David's lineage. He had the schooling in the scriptures. He had all the opportunity to love and serve God. He was spared of his own life from a wicked queen. He ascended to the throne at age seven, at a very young age for a king of Israel. He had God's hand of blessing on him for many years. Until the reason for that blessing, Jehoiada passes off the scene. You see, Christian, our faith is not to be just founded upon some other individual. Our faith is not founded upon some parents or mentors or guides. Our faith is to be founded in the Word of God. There is a great need for disseminating and propagating that truth. And, and many times there in Joshua and, and in the with Israel as they were in the wilderness, and even in early in the promised land, God's reminder was set up memorials so that people will remember the goodness of God and continue to remind them of how good God has been. Because they don't want it just to be a story of the past. They don't want God's blessings to be something of yesterday. They want them to be of today. That God is a covenant-keeping God for 400 in 30 years, Israel was there. They were, in the, they were in Egypt. God delivered them as he promised. God did a marvelous work. God made a promise, and it was fulfilled. God made a promise of deliverance out of Egypt. And then the, the Egyptian army came. And again, we have to continue to look at the blessings of God. Don't look at the daily trials. 
Look at the blessings of God. Look at how good God is. Look, I mean, if we're looking at the trials, then we are of a heart of a sower that when trial and tribulation comes, we wither away. This ought not to be. And Jehoash was just such a man. And the pressure is off of him. And the accountability, he goes forth and commits great sins. What a sad state to end a life of someone that started so right. An individual might say, well, I had a very hard upbringing. Your hard upbringing doesn't determine the end of your life. A good upbringing doesn't determine the end of your life either. Just because you start good doesn't mean you'll finish good. See, Jehoash, he forsook God. The position that God had given to him got to his mind, in his head. He had raised money in a sort for freedom only to have that freedom taken from him. And he would be assassinated and murdered. What a shameful thing to have happened. The pride would be abased. And that's the truth. God will abase you. If you live in pride, you live in uh, self-dependence, God's going to get a hold of you. And he'll humble you. And he did this with Jehoash. This is a very shameful, regrettable, I would say an incident of of history that they failed, they did partial obedience. Unfortunately, this priest should have taken away these high places. They should have had no place to go back to the idols of the past. But they didn't follow. Let's pray, and we'll dismiss, and then we'll come to the morning service. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I yield today to you. I thank you for being our wonderful Savior. God, I just pray that in our lives, that, Lord, we might have the hand of others upon us. Uh, we might have others that are with us and accountability. But, Father, you're a great God, and I just pray today that we would live right. And Lord, we'd be people of integrity When pressure comes, we wouldn't just give in. But God, we'd stand true upon the word of God. I love you and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.
Excuse me, 161. 161. Amen. We are on the Lord's side. I trust that's true of you. And you are on the Lord's side. Amen. Every one of us. 161. The Comforter has come. 161. 161. The Comforter has come. Oh, spread the tidings round, wherever man is found, wherever human hearts and human woes abound. Let every Christian tongue proclaim the joyful sound, the Comforter. Comforter has come, the Comforter has come, 
us from him the father's promise give oh spread the tidings round wherever man is found the comforter has come verse three wings to every captive soul a full deliverance brings and through the vacant cells the song of triumph rings the comforter has come the comforter has come the comforter has come, the Holy Ghost from heaven, oh, this promise give, oh, spread the tidings round, wherever man is found, the Comforter has come. Verse 4, oh, boundless love divine. Thou this tongue of mine to wandering mortals tell the matchless grace divine that I, a child of hell, should in his image shine. The Comforter has has come the Holy Ghost from heaven the Father's promise given oh spread the tidings round wherever man is found the comforter has come Amen you may be seated couple announcements for you. We do have giving can be done either before or after service in the offering plates or through Interact e-transfer. Uh, that is there in the bulletin. We do have a church fellowship tonight and we'll have some food and uh, after the evening service a time to just enjoy one another's company. If you'd like to come on out, it is Labor Day weekend, so for many they have a day off. And So if you'd like to come, I'm looking to possibly also show a video called Redeeming Hope about the gospel. It's an exciting movie. Uh, there's also a business meeting uh, for all members of the church, Sunday, September 10th, so that's next Sunday after the evening service. And then on Sunday, September 17th, our normal 11 a.m. service will start at 10.30, just on that day, just on the 17th, uh, uh, and, uh, and we, there will be no Sunday school on the 17th. So just a word of note for you, in two Sundays, we'll start at 10.30, uh, no Sunday school, and that's just on the 17th only. On the 24th, we'll return uh, to our normal 10 a.m. Sunday school, 11 a.m. morning service. And so, love to have you come on out for that uh, Thanksgiving celebration, October 8th. We'll do something special on that day, and we'll have uh, just uh, have some <laughs> meetings there first on that. But uh, looking forward to what we're going to do on Thanksgiving Day. And you know what? Bring your praises. And uh, my favorite time of the year is Thanksgiving. Uh, I just love an opportunity to brag on our God. Amen, how wonderful he is. So I trust that you come on out. Uh, an illustration today uh, is practicing grace. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. 
On one occasion, Parker uh, commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Spurgeon blessed Parker the next week, uh, excuse me, blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plate three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserve. You have given me what I needed. And what a wonderful truth there. We're going to be talking about measuring the log and removing the hogs. Uh, and you'll understand here in just a moment as we read that passage of Scripture uh, there in Matthew chapter 7. Would you look with me on the front, if you have your bulletin, our September verse of the month. It is a new month. And uh, so we're going to say our new verse of the month. Uh, Jeremiah one nineteen. Jeremiah one nineteen. You know what? You're always going to have someone in opposition to you. But uh, the Lord uh, will fight for us, and they will not prevail against us. They will not defeat us if we're on the side of the Lord. So let's always stay on God's side. Amen? All right, let's say Jeremiah 1. We'll say the reference, the verse, and then we'll say the reference again. Are you ready? Jeremiah 1.19. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Jeremiah 1.19. I hope that's slow enough and a little slower, but uh, on that. All right, number 502 in your blue hymnal, 502, 502 in your blue hymnal this morning, 502, 502. And the hymn is My Savior First of All, 502. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, and redeem by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepare for me a mansion in the sky. I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know by the print of the nails in his hand. Verse 3 for the last. Oh, the dear ones in glory, how they beckon me to come, and are parting at the river I recall. To the sweet bells of Eden they will sing. 
sing my welcome home, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, and greet Him by His side. I shall stand, I shall know Him, I shall know Him, by the print of the nails in His hands. I'll ask Him this morning, number 492, 492. Jesus loves even me. Amen. Isn't that true? It's so wonderful that God loves each and every one of us. And uh, what a wonderful truth. Four ninety-two. I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of the love in the book He has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. On the chorus, let's sing it out. Verse 3. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing, when in his beauty I see the great King, this shall my song in eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Amen. That had to get you excited. Jesus loves me, and he loves you, he loves all of us, amen? And uh, the book it is given, the Bible, God's Word, tells us of the great love of our Savior. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Dealing with a topic uh, this morning, and I believe it's going to take me a couple weeks to get through it, uh, deals with judging. And this is a topic with a lot of different opinions, thoughts, uh, and so forth. So in Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me there? I've entitled this sermon, Measuring the Log and Avoiding the Hogs. And uh, you'll you'll see here in just a moment on that. But if you have your Bibles, would you follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 7? Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, or you're measuring someone else, it shall be measured to you again. 
And why beholdest thou the mote, that mote is a splinter that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to my brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye? And behold, the beam is thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly, and he cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy, excuse me, unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. An, other, an usher was speaking to another usher, and he said, we have nothing but good, kind Christians in this church until you try to seat them in someone else's pew. <laughs> I hope that's not true here, but uh, um, I trust. But uh, this verse is, you know, as we think about this verse here, judge not, and that's a, a phrase that's many times used of, of Christians, particularly, I, I believe, uh, towards Christians. This uh, statement is misapplied, misquoted, and taken out of context, and altogether twisted from the meaning Christ gave. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been going through it, uh, we've been discussing our relationship to God, our relationship with things, and also, and now here, God is dealing with our relationship with others. Uh, Rod uh, Mattoon, he makes a comment on it. He says, there's a lot of confusion today about the matter of judging a person and what it means to judge someone else. If a, if a church disciplines a member or if a pastor preaches against sin or confronts someone about their sin, he is sometimes accused of judging that person when that is not the case at all. He is doing what the Bible teaches to do. He is exercising spiritual discernment and taking steps to salvage or restore a wayward Christian. Now, the way that this phrase is many times used, judge not, you'll hear from the mountaintops many times of many individuals. This phrase is used in connection with who are you to judge me? Jesus told us never to judge people, only to love them, says one person. And this perspective flows from an individualistic mindset in which the basis of morality and justice ought to be independently determined. determined excuse me, at shortening the intention of Jesus' statement to practically mean do not judge. This line of thought is standards, I'm reading here something for you, Christianity.com, the standard that there is no objective truth or morality and that we don't need to be held responsible for our behavior. This desire for moral independence fits well with an individualistic society, but comes up short with the context of the following verses when Jesus describes stringent standards for the behavior of his followers, noting how the path of life is narrow. If you look in verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads into life, and few of the be that find it. And we recognize and discern false prophets. Look with me, verse 16. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? He's, he's, so he's talking here uh, about very people that, with whom God is giving judgment. Now, how can Jesus be opening chapter 7 by telling us not to judge and then provide specific measures and categories of individuals? And really telling us about false prophets and foolish men. And as we think about this passage of Scripture, uh, it's not about judging, but it is about a critical spirit. You see, the Bible, there's a very clear and objective way with which we are to live our lives. John chapter 7, verse 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And what God is calling us to do is there is to be an assessment 
of, of a situation. There is not to be a critical spirit towards others. God doesn't want us to have a critical spirit. And I'm going to give some differentiation. I'm, I'm going to talk about a lot of different things in this sermon. And this is one of those sensitive topics. And I, and I understand that. And I, and, I, and I intend no part of this. Uh, I, I'm not trying to be harsh. But this is where we're at in the scriptures. How do I assess a situation? Uh, what if the, the assessment of a situation and the discussion with someone doesn't go the way I think it should? How am I to respond to that? How am I to behave when things just, there's a difference of opinion? And now, we must exercise proper judgment. God's called us to that. But not a hypocritical judgment. And God has called us that we ought not to act in a mean, vindictive, or revengeful manner. The Bible is our standard for what is right. The Bible, there is nothing outside of the Word of God. The Bible is all I need for life and godliness. It's the truth. There's no, there's no extra revelation that God gives us. It's this book. Revelation 22, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. This book is our standard for what is right. Now this book is, is not a hammer to beat someone over the head with. Their judgment, what all judgment is, is an assessment of a situation with which you come to a conclusion. Now, your spirit and your attitude as you engage a situation is very, very important. God's condemnation here is not of making an assessment, but it is of a critical spirit and a critical spirit you'll reap what you sow you see a critical and or unforgiving spirit is the death of so many christians and it does incalculable hurt and so the principle this morning and i trust i'll i'll deal very gently with this but may we have the heart of christ as we correctly judge in spirit and in truth let us pray dear heavenly father lord i I love you, and I come before you this morning, and I need your help. Father, all of us have our ideas on things, and Lord, the only standard by which we are to measure our life is the Word of God. The only revelation is the Word of God that you have clearly given to us. It's canonized. It's the standard. And Father, I pray today as I preach your holy Word, every word that I speak, Lord, I pray that it would be accurate, precise, and Father, that I would not say anything against what your word teaches. And Lord, you go before us, and we'll trust you, Lord, as we look to your word. I pray that you would help all of us to judge and establish and verify through the word of God. Father, should there be someone this morning that is not saved, may they realize the judgment of you and Lord, if they, don't have a, if they have not put their faith in you, Lord, may they do that today. And so God, I commit all of this to you. I love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.
I want to look at, first of all, the epidemic of a critical spirit. Would you look with me at Ezekiel chapter 16? The epidemic of a critical spirit. And I just want to, you know, really, this is, and I'm using several passages of Scripture here. Uh, How easy is it to have a critical spirit uh, wherein the words with which I'm speaking uh, are as a proudful boasting of my position of prominence over someone else. Now, to make an assessment of an individual is not inherently wrong. But, and I'm going to deal with this, but in short, the scripture here is saying, listen, we ought to be evaluating ourselves first. What in my life, what sins are in my life before I engage with others? And I'll deal with how to engage that and what God calls us to in the standard by which we do this. And, and I'm trying to take this very methodically, but I want us that we find an epidemic of a critical spirit all throughout the scriptures. And I find, I, I would say, even today in our modern era. In, ex, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 51. Uh, neither hath Samaria committed half of thy sins. Now he's talking, you're dealing with uh, Judah. Now Samaria here in the northern kingdom, there's ten tribes of Israel, they're separated from Judah and Benjamin. And uh, neither hath Samaria committed half of thy sins, but thou hast multiplied thine abominations more than they, and hast justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. So Judah is saying, well, we're better than Samaria. We're not, you know, in, in Samaria, if you remember, Samaria would marry uh, some, they were Jews who had married some of those who were Gentiles. And so there was some intermarriage there. And well, we are pure Jews and, and we follow the laws of God and we're Judah. We're of the lineage of David and, you know, and so on and so forth. And they have all these traditions with which they can puff themselves up. And the northern kingdom had already, you know, been destroyed and going forth. Thou also which has judged thy sister, uh, verse 53, excuse me, or no, did I read verse 52? I don't remember, but I'll read it again if I did. Thou also which has judged thy sister, bear thine own shame for thy sins. Thou hast committed more abominable than they, they are more righteous than thou. Yea, be thou confounded also, and bear thy shame, and that thou hast justified thy sisters. When I shall bring again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, and the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of thy captives in the midst of them, that thou thou mayest bear thine own shame, and mayest be confounded in all that thou hast done, and that thou art a comfort unto them. When thy sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate in Samaria, and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then thou and thy daughters to return to your former state, but here is a critical spirit of Judah overlooking, well, we're not going to be destroyed like the northern kingdom because we're not like them. And here is Ezekiel the prophet in the word of God is God saying, listen, your works are worse than they. There's a judgment here, but the judgment is, Judah, your critical spirit. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 12. On another incident, incident, excuse me, on this. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, in this scenario, David has had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and he's murdered her husband. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and that's with which we enter into this chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. 
But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him. And with his children, it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. And thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee my master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would moreover have given to thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Here is a critical spirit. David, Nathan comes to him, tells him about this rich man that takes this poor man's singular lamb to eat it. And David's incensed. David's a shepherd, not realizing that he had taken a man's wife to be his wife and killed the man. There's a critical spirit towards others without an assessment of his own personal wrongdoing. And realize in Psalm 51, as David pours out his heart to God, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from uh, from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And the fact is, here in David, in Psalm 51, he's bearing the shame. Ezekiel talked about a shame as they were there in their critical spirit. Now, as we come to our passage of Scripture here, and we find this, you'll find this all throughout the Scriptures. You'll find this all throughout our world of a critical spirit, quick to harm others with our words, and yet slow to look at ourselves. And uh, I will talk more on that, but the idea of judge here is to judge a past judgment upon or express an opinion about. Now, as Jesus says, judge not, this is an imperative, it's a command with a very forceful emphasis. It is binding upon our will. It's, it's, It's a strong statement. But what is really the meaning of this passage of Scripture? You know, find it with me in Matthew 7, 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. The verse is not speaking in regards to don't speak anything offensive. Because in verse 6, he's speaking about people with whom would be categorized as dogs and hogs. It's obviously, you know... And so there's a discernment. There's a consideration. God's command here is is not a judgment by the civil courts. But we understand that if we get in trouble with the law, then in Titus 3.1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So he's saying don't speak evil. 
Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, and they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And 1 Peter 2, Submit yourselves to everyone that's a man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as to supreme, or unto governors as unto them, which are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. So again, he's not talking about a judgment by the civil magistrates, by justices, if you would. Here's another thing. Those who would say to a Christian, don't judge, and and yet our world judges all the time. There's a critical spirit towards someone that wants to serve Jesus. Essentially, this idea of judge not is don't accuse me of wrong or don't offend me or make me feel sad for my wrong actions. Now, I understand, and and what I'm saying now, I I trust... (laughs) How you say it, how you deliver it, your countenance, all of that, it matters. Because if you're coming uh, with, a, uh, with, a, uh, with an attitude of ready to throw the gavel down, then you're not coming in compassion. So that's not what I'm, I'm not talking about, you did what, blah, 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 and you, know, you just spew out all of them, you know. <laughs> and... So here's several, uh, there's 51 quotes on don't judge and all secular, and I'm not reading all 51, I'll read several of them, and how the world judges today. The world tells us don't judge, and yet there's always criticism. There's a critical spirit towards us, toward people in general. When someone judges you, it isn't actually about you, it's about them and their own insecurities, limitations, and needs. Now, If someone is in a trade or you're playing a sport and the and the coach says listen if you follow this fundamental principle of saying you're playing hockey if you follow this fundamental principle of how to use your stick and and how to you know move your skates I'm not a hockey player so (laughs) I'm very uh, ignorant on that but if the, the coach is giving you some instructions because of his years of experience, he's making a judgment, but it's for your correction and your betterment. If you're in education, you're teaching, and maybe you're giving correction, so you're making some sort of assessment of a lack of uh, actions on a particular person's behalf with which you want to correct and improve that person. Judging one person, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. And we are entitled to grace, but if I see someone going to jump off a cliff, I'm going to try to stop them. Because that's a, that's a direction that is harmful to that individual. If someone goes to the bridge to jump from the bridge, I'm hoping someone would try to stop them. Because that jump is very destructive and hurtful. Joel Edgerton said, I'm really good at judging, observing other people, but not myself. And that is very true. Realize in Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 60, the, uh, the, uh, Stephen, 
who was a, a deacon there in the church of Jerusalem, and he preached uh, against the religious, he preached against uh, the wrong direction, he preached against the religiosity, wrong doctrine, and they cast him out of the city, Acts chapter 7. You can read with me here. You know, here's how really we find worldly hypocrisy displayed. Acts chapter 7. I, I know I'm maybe very slow in, in this, but I want to kind of just get our minds thinking on this idea of judge not. You know, we're not supposed to judge. Uh, I'm not supposed to offend. And I want to show you that this happens all the time. Now, this is not a retaliatory, or it's not, I'm getting revenge because you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. That's not the Christian atmosphere at all. That ought to ever be a Christian attitude. But the worldly hypocrisy of don't judge me because I'm doing wrong, or maybe I'm going a direction which is not towards God, which will lead to eternal judgment by God, and I'm concerned about that person out of love for that person. I'm not going to them with a, with a haughty spirit, and I'm not going to them with an uncompassionate spirit, but I'm going to them with a brokenness and a humility, saying, please don't go that direction. I'm still making a judgment, I'm making an assessment, but it's the attitude of my heart, it's the disposition, the countenance with which I'm, I'm engaging this individual. But truth is truth, and error is error. If someone's trying to make a direction through the bush with a compass, and, and you are told to go such and such a direction on your compass... If your compass is off by just a fraction and you're going a long distance, you won't reach your destination. So it would be nice to have a correct compass that's going to get you to the destination you want to go. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58 uh, in verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. And cast him out of the city, this is Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice. They didn't want to hear him, so they judged him worthy of death and they killed him. John the Baptist, he told Herod, hey, you ought not to have your brother's wife. You're not to be sleeping with your brother's wife. And she didn't like it, and so she had his head cut off. I, I, I dare say that that's some judgment. But that wasn't for his betterment. Or how about with Jesus, who was innocent, and the mob said, crucify him. I dare say that's some judgment of a critical spirit for the destruction of an individual. In Acts chapter 19, Paul was preaching, and there the people came against him, saying, you know, they came, great as Diana of the Ephesians, he preached against the idolatry of the city they were in, and, and the pagans, he upset them, and they wanted, they cast him out, or they wanted to destroy him. I mean, the, the idol makers were like, hey, our whole business is going to be destroyed if we let Paul preach. In the minds of many, a critical spirit seeks for the harm, the hurt, and the destruction of someone else. But a proper judgment, an assessment of a situation is going to desire that an individual, and I'm going to show you some precedents of judging in the scriptures here shortly, 
But I'm desiring, as I make some statements based upon truth of God's word, this is my foundation, that I want the other person to be bettered. I want to help them to get closer to God, get closer to Christ. The ideal Christian, especially the ideal preacher, is cons- in, in, in this idea of don't judge, is considered to be a sissy, undiscerning, indulgent, all-accepting jellyfish without any backbone who lives out the misinterpretation of judgment and doesn't rock the boat or ruffle any feathers. But it's a, it kind of, if you would say, ironic, as I mentioned, this idea of what we had before. They stoned Stephen. They killed John the Baptist. They murdered Jesus. They tried to, they stoned Paul. And all of these other things that happen today because we disagree. The cancel culture, you, they disagree, so we'll cancel them. I dare say that's quite a heavy opinion of seeking for the destruction of someone else. So in Jesus' statement here, the judge not, it's... Now, what is any precedence of judging that we find in the Scriptures? In 2 Corinthians, I'd like you to look with me here at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's a precedence of judging, and we see the end result of it. Second Corinthians chapter 4. If I'm giving out truth for, to throw a hammer down, to beef up my own pride, then that's a critical spirit. And that is destructive. But if I'm putting truth out that the other individual would correct a wrong direction then there's something here. Look at me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And I want to ask you this. Jesus, you know, in John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's a very singular focus. That's a very singular path. And so he said, if our gospel is hid, so we've got to reveal the gospel. There's very many different religions in the world today. But the Bible tells us there's one way to Jesus. I'm making an assessment. I'm making a declaration which could be determined as judging, but with the idea and the end goal of bringing people to Jesus, the truth, the way, the life. Because truth, you can argue with truth, but truth is truth. Jehovah, in the divergent worldviews, and Jehovah or God, there's some differing... uh, opinions. In Isaiah chapter 57, but draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? 
So God takes Judah to task for her idolatry. God is saying, listen, you're going the wrong direction. You have a spiritual direction towards a, really, in the faith, it's an adulterous faith where I'm not faithful to God, but I'm faithful to the worship of other objects. And God makes a differentiation. How about another individual in the scriptures? John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He calls these Pharisees and Sadducees vipers. He's making an assessment of their spiritual condition. He said, listen, the direction you're going spiritually towards God is not correct. Do you realize in in Jesus' life, look with me at uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 8, let's look at the next precedence of of another example in Scripture, of, of, of Scripture where there is assessment. I mean, John the Baptist, he didn't hold back. Because he realizes these Pharisees and Sadducees, if people follow the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they will not get to God. They will not have a reconciled relationship with God. They will not reach heaven because there is wrong and errant doctrine. So there is an assessment given. And these men were very filled up with pride and arrogance. John the Baptist would call them vipers. I dare say that that's some sort of judgment. But he wants to warn the people, these people are dangerous. There's the end goal of the, for the betterment and the benefit of others. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 a messianic prophecy, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be for a sanctuary but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Understand this, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, a rock of offense. Remember Israel wanted to crucify Christ. He was a stone of stumbling. In Matthew chapter 6, 2, 6, 5, 6, 16, Jesus calls these Pharisees hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking of hypocrisy. You're saying one thing and doing another. And this critical spirit... I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 10. Christian, you must be fully persuaded in your own mind upon the word of God. This is our standard for what is right. And hence, there's always an emphasis here in this church upon doctrine because doctrine is the standard by which I'm evaluated by God. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 38... Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. 
Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. What? Huh? I'm not come to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Following Christ is a statement, I'm going to follow Jesus before I follow my family. It's Jesus first. Because it's who Jesus is. And Luke chapter 12 is a parallel passage with this. as a cross-reference, Luke 12, 51-53. Jesus says there's going to be divisions. So this idea of judge not and don't offend and don't create uh, any problems, this is not according to God's word. So if someone says don't judge, the world naturally judges. I mean, by the very fact they're saying don't judge, they're making a judgment that you're judging them. That you're making an assessment of that something uh, is maybe not right. Now it could also be just... Uh, and your hypocrisy and your critical spirit. Sometimes, when we are doing wrong, we want to blame others to make ourselves feel good. And that's what Jesus is speaking against. That's the hypocrisy. And Jesus would call these religious rulers generation of vipers, Matthew 12, 34. Hypocrites, Matthew 15. Look with me in Matthew 15, verse 11. Is it ever right to offend Now, as I'm teaching this and preaching through God's Word, please don't think, oh, well, pastor's teaching, we can judge, so now I can, I'm not teaching that at all. Because the attitude I'm approaching a situation ought to always, as the Scriptures always tell us, in humility. Pride is an abomination to God, as Proverbs tells us. Okay? And that's a critical spirit. But if I'm going to, you know what? You're going to have people that are going to disagree with you. You might offend people. But make sure in your offense, you're standing not only in truth, but you're acting in truth. It's how you, it's what you believe, but it's also how you deliver the message. The deliverance of the message really does give an indication of the condition of your heart. In Matthew 15, verse 11, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said to him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard his, the saying? That word offended there is to shock through word or action, to give offense to, to anger, to shock. And Jesus did offend them. Verse 13, but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind, leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Jesus is saying, Friend, these religious leaders are leading you down a direction which is disastrous. The blind are leading the blind. He's making an assessment on the spiritual state of these individuals.
In Matthew 21, Jesus goes into the temple and casts, overthrows the tables of the money changers, upseats the seats of them that sell doves. My house shall be called the house of prayer, he says. But ye have made it a den of thieves. He's calling these people robbers. But Jesus understands that they're merchandising God's people for their own personal benefit. So Jesus is making a judgment, if you would, an assessment, a discernment. I'd like you to look with me at Matthew 23. And I'm going to have to, I'm not going to be able to get to Paul's life uh, this morning, but in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23, verse 12. And whosoever shall exalt him, uh, yeah, <laughs> whosoever shall exalt himself shall be, uh, shall ex- exalt himself shall be a base, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, nor neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. He says, listen, your false doctrine is closing people's path to a reconciliation with God. In verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore shall ye receive the greater damnation. He says, listen, you're willing to foreclose a mortgage on an impoverished widow. You're about the money. Verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. He says, listen, you go to great efforts to proselytize or to convert people to your belief, but he says your false belief is making it more difficult for them to see the path to life. Verses 16 through 22, he's talking about hair splitting and, and, and rabbi's traditions. In verse 19, ye fools and blind. The word fools there in Greek is moros, from which we get the English word moron. Jesus is done with their hypocrisy. In verses 23 through 24, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. He says, you might be saying, this person comes into the temple and they act like this and maybe they're a little bit off, but you're not concerned about their heart. They might not dress right. They might not talk right. But you're more concerned about that than you are about their heart and relationship to God. Understand, Jesus is like, these Pharisees have wrong doctrine that is hurting a lot of people. Verse 25 and 26, For ye make a woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside also, and the outside of them may be clean also. He says, listen, you're so focused on what people do on the outside, you're not concerned on what's on the inside. You know, we can talk right, we can look the whole Christian part, we can put a smile on our face. But inwardly, our heart is so far from God. 
And I, I believe Christians ought to have a smile on their face and a joy in their countenance. If they come in all grumpy and grouchy, and, and, and that's not Christ-like. But I want to tell you here, we need to focus on the heart, and from the heart will then change our countenance. And Jesus is saying these guys are hypocrites. They're critical. They're destroying people. And Jesus is making some judgments against them, some assessments. Verses 29 through 33, you can read this, but Jesus is saying, listen, you adore the tombs of the prophets and you adore them and, and you, you have feast days and, and you put all this adoration over these tombs of the prophets and, and priests. But he said, you are the very people that would have murdered these prophets and priests. Quite the, that's quite the statement there. Jesus calls these religious rulers serpents, vipers, and hell-bound. He questions them about escaping the damnation of hell. The answer was obvious. These men are not going to escape. They're going down a wrong direction. The gauntlet had been cast down. Jesus challenged them to do something about it. No more was he teaching the gospel of the kingdom or even of salvation. He fired broadside after broadside at the hypocrisy of his enemies. I'm reading from David Sorensen's commentary. The cross was just ahead and he knew it. He thus spared no words against these wicked hypocrites, the religious leaders of official Israel. Righteous indignation fairly poured forth from our Lord. And just because there might be signs and wonders from an individual, Matthew 24, 24, for there shall rise false Christs and false prophets shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Just because there are signs and wonders doesn't mean they're of God. And Jesus would even say about Isaiah that they prophesy, you know, people honor me with their lips. They would, you know, they were just hypocrites after hypocrites. Light is at odds with darkness. And Jesus would even go on to say in John 8, 42, you have your father, in 8, 44, you have your father the devil, and the less of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is saying, you guys speak lies. It's not truth. Now I want to ask you the question, where does truth come from? Truth comes from the word of God. This is our standard. And the fact is, as Jesus is saying, measure the log, he's saying, listen, first of all, these Pharisees, they really do need to look within them. They need to look at their own lives spiritually. They're not right with God. Uh, you know, and, and they're criticizing others. You know, even in the scenario of the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus writes on the ground, and then they all start walking away. And they understood, hey, there's some things in my life that aren't right. So in this judge not statement, it's not that I'm telling someone something that might offend them, because Jesus did, the apostles did, Stephen did, I mean, so on and so forth. That is not my aim to offend anyone. The aim and the objective of the dissemination or the giving of information or giving of, of, of truth of God's word is that of a correction towards God. I want to see them be all that God made them to be. And it always comes back to this book as the standard, absolute standard. And Paul, in the very sense, I'll have to talk a little bit more about this, but uh, just understand that Paul would do very similar as the others that we have spoken to. 
And Christian, today, may we look at our lives, look at our assessments of others, and ask God, am I one with a critical spirit? Father, am I one that, with whom seeks the destruction of another? Am I seeking, as I'm making this assessment, as I'm maybe making some words, am I hoping that the other person would be bettered and closer to Christ? By bettered, I'm saying they'll draw closer to Christ. Because it's, it's the delivery of truth that is so important. Measure the log and avoid the hogs. And I'll talk more about this, Lord willing, next week. But I trust as you think about these principles this morning, there is a precedence of judging and a critical spirit all over our world today. It just happens. But a Christian's, and, and Jesus and John the Baptist, they weren't doing it to justify mean, arrogant, revengeful speech. And I have seen that sometimes, you know, some preaching, <laughs> you know. I'm not trying to do that to justify that. I am saying that the attitude with which I'm approaching someone that might be going in a wrong direction, I could, I could potentially offend them. Jesus offended people. But I ought to consider my heart, consider where I'm at, consider my own life. And as I come to them, am I, and the question I want to ask is, am I desiring the betterment of that person closer to Christ? That's the condition I ought to have in my heart. Am I trying to draw that person closer to the truth of Jesus and the standard of his word? And so as you think on these truths this morning, I trust, I know I didn't deal a lot with necessarily salvation, but you see there is no, the, the God's judgment towards us, the default state is we're all judged sinners. We all, our default state is we will go to judgment. And Jesus came to rescue us from that. And maybe you've never Allow Jesus to rescue you. Never receive the gift of Jesus by faith and ask him to forgive you and be your savior. If you've never done that, I trust that you do that this morning. And Christian, think about when I'm making statements, why am I making these statements? Is there something in my life? Am I going with a critical spirit or am I going with a proper judgment seeking the betterment of the other person? So we come to a time of invitation. If I could have Mrs. Pat come forward, please. I trust with all heads bowed and eyes closed this morning that you'd think about what has been spoken and you'd really focus on what does God say? Am I approaching life in a right manner? Is my heart right? If you're going to judge, you better understand there's going to be a judgment back on you and, and understanding, is my heart right? Christian, may we push off a critical spirit, an unforgiving spirit, and embrace a desire that others would be bettered and closer to Christ. As the music plays this morning, I trust where you're seated that you would just spend some time praying and talking to God, however the Spirit of God spoke to you this morning. And this is a time we normally do every service, an opportunity to give each person to reflect on what was spoken and to consider our own lives. Lord, what is it in my life? Maybe I have a critical spirit. Maybe I'm angry and frustrated with others. And I want to give him a piece of my mind. It could very well be that's a critical spirit. And Jesus spoke and John the Baptist spoke and others spoke, but they did it realizing there's a wrong direction. There's truth that has been trampled on. And they sought for those to get right with God. 
and understand what it's like to walk in liberty with Christ. Just a moment longer as the, the music plays. If my friend this morning, you don't know for sure where you're going to be when this life is over. I'd love to sit down with you with the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that Jesus is your Savior and Christian. May we consider, am I living with a critical spirit or am I living in the truth of God's Word, not only living but applying truth? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for being an amazing Savior. And Father, we understand that our world, it tells us not to judge, but it just doesn't want an accountability with truth. And Father, I pray as we encounter falsehoods that, Lord, we would do so with a heart that is serious about seeing people come to know you, being reconciled, and Lord, not destroying, but to lift up. Father, I thank you for being an amazing Savior. God, go before us and guide us and direct us. And Lord, I pray that we'd really look at our own hearts and we'd understand where I'm at. Because, Father, you've also called us to help. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd embolden us and strengthen us to be the witnesses in a world that needs the truth of Jesus in whom Satan has blinded. Lord, may we stand tall, stay humble, and love as you love. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.